The name Henry Nouwen is one you need to be familiar with. Um, Nouwen was born uh, in Holland in the 1930s and educated in all of the best Western European schools. Uh, He would go on to teach at places like Notre Dame uh, and Yale and even Harvard until such a time as he reached a bit of a crisis in his life that he describes in his book called In the Name of Jesus, where he writes this. He says, after two years in the academic world as a teacher of pastoral psychology, pastoral theology, and Christian spirituality, I began to experience a deep inner threat. As I entered into my 50s and was able to realize the unlikelihood of doubling my years, I came face to face with a simple question. Did becoming older bring me closer to Jesus? After 20 years of priesthood, I found myself praying poorly, living somewhat isolated from other people, and very preoccupied with burning issues. I woke up one day with the realization that I was living in a very dark place and that the term burnout was a convenient psychological translation for spiritual death. What he'd come to find is that his spiritual life at that point, he would go on to say, was lived far too much in the realm of his ideas. He thought big thoughts, but when it came to actual work, among the people that Jesus ended up wanting to touch, (laughs) he just didn't have anything to show for it. So in his early 50s, he actually switched to a position that nobody saw coming because in 1985, he went to go join an organization that was called L'Arche, which was located in France. And these are communities, there are actually more than 100 across the world at this time, that were founded by a Frenchman named Jean Vanier, where people go and assist those who have development mental disabilities and live with them as their assistants. He spent one year there before he migrated to Toronto, Canada to run the L'Arche community there. And the stories that he tells about his his experiences there, I'm going to say that for the end of the sermon. But what really interests me about now and though is this journey of looking at his Christianity purely from from a theoretical standpoint to one of actual flesh and blood practices where the grace of God comes home to us. We have been knee deep in a study this semester through the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus has been unpacking for us the the, the essential nature of the good life, this vision that he has for a complete new human community. And what we find in our passage this morning is is that Jesus is concerned about the same thing that Nouwen was. And that is that in order to live the good life, in order for it to be fully realized in Jesus' followers, you got to look at your motives. You have to ask the question about why you are doing what you're doing before we can even begin. Look, every Christian, and I think every religious person really for that matter, will say that there was some moment where they realized that in order to, I don't know, be a religious person, there were actions that I would have to perform in order to take on such a task. And Christians have referred to this at various times in things like spiritual disciplines. You'll hear people talk about acts of piety or maybe spiritual formation as they do. They include things like giving to the poor or prayer or even religious activities like fasting. But Jesus is saying just because you're doing these things doesn't mean that the meaning behind those activities has penetrated your heart. Remember, Jesus has actually already insisted on the fact that our righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees 
by ensuring that it's something more than just external. It's got to come from a motive that is pure. And I realize that nobody in this room wants to be thought of as being a hypocrite, but have you ever thought about how hard that is? I mean, seriously, how do you make yourself do the right thing for the right reason? It almost reminds me of the person who decides at one point that he's really going to be more humble in life. So he says, you know, I need to be more humble. So he goes to a party and he's got an opportunity to, uh, you know, slide in one of those little humble brags that we love to do in a conversation, make ourselves look good. But you know what? He didn't do it. So he gets back in his car and is driving home and he thinks to himself, you know what? (laughs) I was pretty humble today. And then he blew it, right? It's hard to get fixated on the things that we do. How is it that we can participate in these activities that we know we have to have in order to deepen our faith, but all the while doing it for the right reasons? And does Jesus give us any insight into that task? I think he does by unpacking at least three things this morning. First of all, we need to see the necessity of piety. We need to understand the spoiling of piety. And then finally, hopefully, the healing of our piety. Let's take that first point first, the necessity of our piety. We have to establish this fact before we go anywhere else, that it is, it is normal Christian practice to engage in activities that demonstrate and deepen our understanding of the gospel of grace. You see this actually in the way Jesus frames the whole discussion about our motives in verses 2, 5, and 16, where he says this, when you give to the needy, and when you pray, and when you fast. It's really important that he does not say, if you pray and give and fast. Why? Well, because Jesus understands that all faithfulness has to be embodied. We can't live simply too much in our minds thinking that our thinking is the essence of who we are. Mind you, our thinking is not less than who we are, but it's so much more. Because when we act and behave in certain ways, those actions create patterns. And those patterns create create habits. And those habits begin to form the scaffolding that becomes our mark that we're going to make on the world. So yeah, Jesus is concerned about him. I don't know about you, but I grew up in a religious context where these activities of faithfulness were actually thought to be the essential substance of the Christian life. There was so much emphasis on tithing or praying or witnessing or whatever that the point of those actions sort of was easy to get lost. Have you ever noticed this? In other words, what is the purpose of these acts of piety for? I think we we could do well to take Jesus' three that he gives about giving and praying and fasting. Let's take that first one, the idea of giving. Jesus is simply, I think, saying that your money will almost always follow your passion. I will always give my treasure to some ideal that I have set up in my mind that most of the time will afford me the most admiration from the people around me. That's why I do it. For, for example, let's take the, uh, the, the dreaded uh, trap for Les Newsome that we know as Home Depot. You got to understand, somewhere in my life, I don't know when it happened, I became a person who wanted to have a yard that other people coveted. I want to be that guy. So even the most crass and obvious of in-store marketing can suck me right in. You know what? That's a good idea. I need one of those. And it doesn't matter how much it costs either. Ginger braces herself when I get home from Home Depot. Why? Because it represents a person that I so want to be. And therefore, I begin to sort of find my way into that expense. Now, look, you may not care about your yard, but I bet you've got something that fills that space. Where does my treasure go? And Jesus is saying, I want your passion to line up with my passion, and I am passionate about the poor. 
I am passionate about the disenfranchised. That's where my passion lies. That's where we need to direct our treasure when we do. Secondly, then he talks about prayer. Now look, we're going to spend the next two weeks unpacking this prayer that Jesus gives us uh, to his disciples. But I found that it's often easy in our struggle to pray and to be people of prayer that it's easy to forget the purpose of prayer. And what I realized happened long ago, and I had a wonderful book that a friend gave me that helped unpack this for me. One of the problems with prayer is when you think about prayer as if it's a thing to do. Because when prayer just becomes an abstract abstract activity, prayer is nothing more than an activity, and then it becomes really boring. And what this guy was saying in this book I was reading, he said, we have to understand to do in our prayers what the psalmist is always doing when he prays, (laughs) which is reminding himself who he's talking to. That he's actually speaking to a very real entity with a real personality that's neither a cosmic vending machine on the one hand or a disapproving father on the other, but is a kindly person who longs to be in real conversation. Prayer in that context, I think, is different. Thirdly, though, he goes on to fasting, which I've always thought was weird. You know, we live in a world of intermittent fasting and uh, fadish diets. It just seems a strange thing to somehow connect my devotion for Jesus with um, skipping a few meals. What, What in the world does that have to do with each other? Well, I think that there's a reason behind it. And that is that Jesus is saying, I want you to engage in some self-imposed experiences of tangible hunger so that it can function for you as a a metaphor, as it were, of your inward spiritual longing for, for my righteousness. That's the idea. I'm regularly reminded that I'm to hunger and thirst for righteousness. In other words, fasting becomes, as it were, a physical metaphor for a spiritual reality. And for that reason, it is valuable. Look, before we move on to the next point, just a preview of things to come. We plan uh, this coming summer in July and August to spend some time going through as a congregation our leadership's vision for what a faithful member of Christ Pres looks like. If you were here in January and looked at our goals that we set for 2021, we talked about this big goal of spiritual formation, Christian formation which basically is trying to define for you a question you ought to be asking, which is, what does this church want from me? Uh, What do you want me to become because of my time as an involvement in this congregation? And what resources can you provide me to arrive at that particular destination? This is the activity of spiritual formation. And what we want to do is to present to you that vision But before we even get to there in July, Jesus gives us a great place to start by assuming that we're going to be giving, that we're going to be praying, and we're going to be fasting over those things that mean the most to us. Okay, that's the first point, the necessity of piety. But secondly, then Jesus starts to talk about the spoiling of piety. Look, because none of this actually is the real purpose of Jesus' teaching. He gets to his purpose right away in Matthew 6.1 when he says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before others, other people, in order to be seen by them. Here's what Jesus believes. Jesus thinks that there is an inertia inside every heart to, to, to so externalize my good actions that I'm just doing them for a big show. That's the whole reason for him. For all of these three acts of, of, of piety, Jesus is saying, don't be like the hypocrites. Religious people thought they were doing something, but the truth is, Jesus says, you're just actors. 
Hey, by the way, that's the literal translation of what the word hypocrite in Greek really is. It's an actor. They're pretending to be somebody that they're not. They're, they're putting on a false identity or, or putting on some kind of theatrical display. Hypocrisy is being someone different on your inside than you are on your outside. It's literally being split into multiple parts. So what is Jesus' antidote to this particular ailment? Well, look at verses 6 and 17. He says, well, here's an idea. When you do your works of piety, do them in secret. Don't let anybody see it. In other words, don't give your own heart the opportunity to assign merit for acting so religiously. Don't give your heart the opportunity to do so. Okay, look, before we unpack that, let me do a little small aside here, because some of you are thinking to yourself, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> this is not right, Jesus, because before, in chapter 5, verse 16, you told us there, let your light so shine before brothers so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Okay, so which is it, Jesus? <laughs> are we supposed to do our good deeds in public, or are we supposed to do them in secret? Why Jesus giving us two contradictions? Well, I think the reason why, it doesn't contradict itself. You want to know why? Because Jesus knows our hearts. Our hearts are sufficiently corrupt enough that we are both capable of a fear of being exposed, of actually being a faithful Christian, and also the conceit that comes with longing for people to see how all holy I'm being. This is how John Stott puts it. I love this. He goes, it's our human cowardice which made Jesus say, let your light so shine before men. And it's our human vanity that made him tell us to beware of practicing our piety before men. He quotes from A.B. Bruce who says we are, we are, uh, that we are to show when we're tempted to hide and we are to hide when we're tempted to show. Our good works must be in public so that our light shines and our religious devotions must be in secret lest we boast about them. So yeah, our heart's quite capable of both of those things, hence the two commands. That's a healthy balance right there. Our hearts are looking for loopholes all the time. But then Jesus goes even further, though, in encouraging his followers to do his piety, not just in secret, but also in verse 3 and 4, he says this, But when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Well, what in the world does that mean? <laughs> How do I keep my left hand from knowing what my right hand is doing? Okay, well, think through this with me for a second. What are the activities that you engage in that you do with the least amount of self-awareness or even self-consciousness? You may not realize it, but this morning on my way here, I actually live just in the neighborhood right across the street here, maybe half a mile away. I performed a miracle, and I will describe it to you now. I got into my car in my garage and I pressed a button, and up came the garage door. I put the key into my car, and I started the car, and I put it in reverse. At that moment, I looked into the rearview mirror to see if thing was behind me, and I began to ease out of my garage. As I eased out, I flipped the image in my mind because it obviously was in reverse from where I was going. Then I looked at the camera to make sure that as I backed out, I didn't run into my daughter and my son's cars that were also parked in the driveway. I turned the wheel just enough so that the front part of my car didn't swipe the edge of my garage as we were wont to do. And then I came back, I came just as close as I could to the landscaping uh, that we had just put in actually this week to make sure I didn't crush any of our azaleas. And then I drove here to church. Now here's my question. Here's the miracle. Ask me how much I thought about that process. Zero, not a second. And you want to know why? Because I've done it a million times. 
Look, the people who have gotten really, really good at something, they completely lack any self-awareness about it. Michael Polanyi, the 20th century philosopher, said, the aim of a skillful performance is achieved by the observance of a set of rules which are not even known as such by the person following them. In other words, once you get really good at someone and you become an expert about it, you don't have to think about the rules of it. I can promise you when Randall or Noel are up here playing guitar, they're not pre-focused on this idea of thinking, like, okay, make sure that you keep your finger right behind the fret on the guitar. He's not thinking about that. I played this thing so many times, it's practiced, it's wrote to him. It's unconscious. Great cooks who go into a kitchen, they're not carefully measuring out things. They bake by feel. They've done it for so long. Now look, it's very normal early on to be very preoccupied with the way that we gain those skills. But what Jesus is saying is, I want that skill to become something that's innate to you. That's how you keep one hand from knowing what the other is doing. Happened to me when I was younger. My father... So kids, back in the day, we used to have cars that had things that we called manual transmissions. And there was this thing on the floorboard that you would shift. And a, little, a third pedal on the floor that was called a clutch. And everybody would tell you that when you're learning to drive this car, you got to make sure that you do this even exchange between the clutch and the gas. It was quite amazing in the olden days, right? So I'm trying to learn to drive this car, and I'm failing miserably. And my father is growing in his frustration. But on one particular time, because the problem I had was when you're on a hill. Because once you take that thing out of gear, you're falling backwards. If anybody's behind you, you're going to have an accident. So my father and I, we drove to a hill, and we're sitting on this hill, and I just can't get it. And at one point, you know, I, I tried to keep it even between the two. I rolled back and you know, threw the, shut off the engine. And, my dad, and I was like, Dad, I just can't make it go evenly. And he said, Son, stop, stop, stop. Just make the car go forward. And I can't explain it to you. And my father was not a sort of verbal magician in this particular way, but I just went, click, and we drove off, and I never struggled with it ever again. There was a moment where all of a sudden something just became innate. That's what we're talking about. Jesus is saying, what I want is for all of those things that are normal Christian practices, that they become innate. No self-awareness. Yes, it's a skill to be learned, but over time, it's supposed to, my awareness of it recedes. And it becomes a matter of course to do things without any vanity or calculation or self-congratulation or ego. That's what we're trying to get rid of. It, it, it reminds me a little bit about Matthew 25 when you get to the end of time and Jesus looks at all of the people that are gathered around on the last day and he says, thank you, thank you, because you fed me when I was hungry and, and you visited me when I was in prison and you clothed me when I was naked. And do you know what the believers ask him right after he says that? When did we do that? Exactly. <laughs> That's how Christians respond when they think about that particular act of piety. So there's the necessity of piety. There was the spoiling of piety. But does Jesus give us any instruction on healing this? I think he does. Because what he says in all three instances is that the hypocrite does what he does so that he might be seen by men. Now that is a very interesting image there. Because it's as if Jesus is, is, is saying that any action that you do, you always have an audience in mind. You ever thought about that? The Greeks actually had a word to describe that. It was theathenai, from which we get the word theater. Because the, it, the point is, there really is no way to perform an action without any audience. John Stott says that even though the, even though the true Christian understands that he's being watched, he knows what the true audience is. That audience actually is God. That's the difference. 
We all are performing. We're performing for God, though. But here's the question that I wanted to leave you with this morning. How does knowing that God is our audience change the nature of your performance? That's a very big question. It gets bigger as I sit here and you need to think about it right now. How does knowing that God is the audience change the nature of your performance? Well, think of it this way. Have you ever thought about, thought about how miserable a hypocrite is? A hypocrite is mis- miserable because the merit that he's trying to glean from all of his good actions and things he does well is so fickle, isn't it? You know, sometimes you, she feels confident. Sometimes she feels depressed. When my audience changes from my friend's approval or, or my children's success or whether my husband is engaged in my family or not, it can go back and forth. It's a miserable existence. So here's the question that we might go to someone who is in that state of mind. I wonder if there's anything that could happen to you in life that might make you stop grasping for merit marks. Whatever could stop that? Well, the only thing that would help you stop keeping score in your life is the knowledge, the declaration, dare I say the the proclamation, that you already won the game. It's already over. There's no more points to be won. There's no more merit to be gained. Because Jesus is saying, on the cross, I was displayed publicly. And I stood before an audience. And yes, the human audience rejected me from the very beginning. They're the reason why I was pinned up there. But you know what? There was another audience. And that audience was my father. And it was a magnificent performance. And on the other side of that performance, my father wrote a review of exactly how the performance went. And it went a little something like this. This is my beloved son, and I am so pleased with him. So that now when Jesus comes and invites his followers to come and be in Christ, to be in union with him, we don't do it for merit marks anymore. Not because we're longing for him, because we've already got enough. It takes me off of that entire treadmill. And the amazing part of that is, is nothing like it will supernaturalize your piety. So Henry Nouwen got into the habit while he was working with the mentally handicapped to bringing some of the adults from his community on his speaking tours. He's a world-renowned speaker and conference speaker. Well, he remembers one event in particular in a book he wrote uh, where he took uh, Bill. And he said to Bill uh, that he wanted to have him come along with him, and Bill was just beside himself with joy over being to get to him. As they boarded the plane, he kept looking at him and saying, Henry, we are doing this together. Upon arrival at the venue, though, uh, now and realized that as he got up to the podium to speak to the hundreds of people involved, he realized that Bill had intention of wanting to participate in the speech way more than he thought that he would. Bill walked up with him and stood right behind him, making comments throughout his presentation. Once Nowen had finished, Bill leaned forward and asked him if he could say something. And Nowen said he just cringed on the inside because he thought to himself, oh, what is he going to say? Bill stepped up to the mic and he said this, I'm so happy that I could be here today with Henry so that he and I could do this together. And he turned around and walked back down and sat down. <laughs> now would go on to say afterwards, not one attendee talked to him after his speech about the content of his speech. 
Everyone wanted to look and say how wonderful it was to see Bill there and to see the excitement on his face. Now, what's the point of telling that story? Because a hypocrite is incapable of that kind of impact. You want to know why? Because it's not flashy enough. It's not neat. It lacks a, a tidiness to it. There's not enough merit involved in that kind of experience. But see, Jesus knows how to free us from the tyranny of our horrible motives by dying on the cross to, create a, to, to rid ourselves of the need of having to perform for anybody because we've already been accepted by the only audience that counts. Hey, that's what this table is about. This table is about filling our stomachs as a spiritual metaphor for the filling that we have gotten in Christ. Do you see the connection? It's Jesus being offered to you this morning. Consider that an invitation. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you then give us the grace to be able to see it. As we go to this table, we pray that we would know in ways that we couldn't have known before that you have drawn near to us. And Father, our performances have made us and others around us miserable. Would you free us from ourselves and give us the great grace, Father, to worship, to partake, and to take great joy in what it is that you do. Father, we long to be recipients and to sense your presence here this morning. Lord, we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.